We've been working our way of late through um, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, and we've been doing so primarily on Wednesday evenings, um, but we're going actually to turn to that book also this morning and take a look at the first nine verses of chapter 4. So turn with me now to the book of Philippians and to the fourth chapter, Philippians chapter 4. Father, we do pray, as we sang, that your Holy Spirit would guide this time. That there would be unction from Him. There would be a clear word from on high. Clear application for our souls. Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to what you have to say to us through the Apostle Paul this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This book of Philippians, like many of the New Testament books, is really actually a letter. And it is a letter, as we have seen, from a grateful missionary to one of his most faithful supporting churches, perhaps his most faithful supporting church, the church in the ancient city of Philippi. More than once, Paul says later in chapter 4, the Philippians have sent him financial support, and they are doing so, or were doing so, even when there was no other church pitching in at times. And now, they've done so again. They've sent Paul another gift, this time to get him through a very difficult period in his life, a period in which he's been imprisoned because of his gospel labors, imprisoned in the cause of Christ. And Paul loves them for it, which you can clearly hear throughout this letter. And so he writes this letter, among other things, as a kind of thank you note and as a kind of missionary bulletin all rolled into one. Paul wants the Philippian believers to know that he has received their gift and to know how grateful he is for it, both to them and to God. And he also wants them to have an update on the latest from the mission field and on the welfare of their now imprisoned missionary. But he wouldn't be the Apostle Paul, would he, if his missionary thank you and his missionary bulletin was not also filled with a good bit of gospel teaching and instruction as well. He thanks his friends in Philippi. He updates them on his own welfare and on his own work. But as a good pastor is wont to do, he also wants to fit in some teaching as well. At every opportunity, he's teaching. And that's what we find him doing this morning at the beginning of chapter 4. Paul is going to lay out for his Philippian friends in rapid succession a whole host of Christian virtues that the Philippians should pursue. And that, of course, we should pursue as well. And our focus this morning, as I said, is going to be on chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. But before we read those verses, and just in order to catch ourselves up on the context into which Paul writes them, let's first read the final five verses of chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, 
whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, verse 1, Therefore, because you have had good examples, verse 17, to show you how to walk the Christian walk, and because there are so many people, verses 18 and 19, who make shipwreck of the Christian faith and whose focus only seems to be on the stuff of this life, and because your citizenship, verse 20, is actually in heaven, therefore, verses 1 through 9, you who truly know Christ ought to live very differently. Your life ought to be distinct. Your life ought to be of a heavenly quality, even while you are still on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It's interesting that he says our citizenship is in heaven, and then he gives all sorts of instructions about how to live on the earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, therefore our life on the earth ought to be heavenly. And it's a beautiful portrait Paul paints here, is it not? Christianity, when it is lived out according to the terms of these verses, is a heavenly thing. It's a stunning thing. It's an attractive thing. It's a beautiful thing. Just look at the kind of person. Imagine the kind of person that Paul describes in these nine verses. Someone, verse 1, who stands firm in his faith. Someone, verses 2 and 3, who readily forgives and reconciles with her sisters in Christ. Someone, verse 4, who overflows with joy in the Lord. Someone who is gentle, verse 5. Someone who is not anxious, verse 6. But whose countenance, even in the face of difficulty, reflects peace. A peace that's really hard, actually, to account for. A person of prayer, verse 6. One who's continually thankful. A person whose heart and mind are consistently focused, verse 8, on that which is true and honorable and right and pure. It's an attractive portrait, isn't it? 
standing firm, forgiving, peace, joy, gentleness, prayerfulness, thanksgiving, mindset on the right things. It's a beautiful picture. This is the kind of person that you'd want to share a cubicle with, isn't it? It's the kind of person you'd want to marry, right? It's what you wish all your neighbors were like, and incidentally, what they probably wish you were like. But let me ask you, do you actually know anyone who looks like the kind of Christian whose portrait Paul is painting as he sets the template for the Philippians here in these verses? Do you know anyone who really just exudes peace and joy and confidence in the Lord that cannot be shaken? Anyone whose mind seems always to be on the right things and never in the gutter? Anyone who who is like this? Someone will answer wisely by raising their hand and saying, I do, I know someone like this. Jesus. Right? This is what the Sunday school children would say, and they would be exactly right. Jesus is just like what Paul is describing here, isn't he? If there was ever anyone who stood firm in the Lord, if there was anyone who was quick to forgive, if there was anyone who was ever filled with joy and gentleness and peace, if there was ever a man of prayer, if there was ever a man of thanksgiving, if anyone's mind was ever focused on that which is true and honorable and right and pure, it was, it was Jesus, right? He is the perfect human. He is all that mankind was intended to be. He is the perfect fulfillment of all that Paul commands here in Philippians chapter 4. And Indeed, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all God's holy law, isn't he? He obeyed his heavenly Father impeccably and completely and in everything. He was always and perfectly what we so often are not. And so, of course, he's the perfect embodiment of the beautiful, attractive, heavenly life that Paul has commanded us to live here in Philippians. And we praise God that he is, right? We praise God that Jesus was and is more than any of us will ever be. That Jesus was and is all that Paul commands in these verses. Because that's what fitted him to be our Savior, right? That's what fitted him to be our great high priest. That's what fitted him to be our righteousness and to die for our sins. It was fitting, the author of Hebrews says, for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. And so we are right when we look at the standard that Paul has laid down for us in Philippians 4. We are right if we look at it and say to ourselves, well, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus. And yet, Jesus should not be the only person we can think of when we look at the portrait that Paul is painting here. No. What Paul actually commands is that we would look like this. That we would do these things. That we would live this Christ-like, this attractive, this beautiful, this heavenly lifestyle here on earth. That we would do that. Paul commands that you would stand firm in the Lord. He commands that I would be quick to forgive. He commands that we would be people of joy and peace and gentleness. That our minds would constantly be fixed on what is true and honorable and right and pure. Paul wrote these verses not really as a portrait of Jesus, but as a template, as a sketch drawing of what we can be in Jesus. Indeed, of what we must be in Jesus. 
And before we look more closely at Paul's individual bullet points, let me just emphasize those last two words, in Jesus. This is a picture of what we can be, what we must be in Jesus. Did you notice that over and again? Paul emphasizes these traits are to be taken up in the Lord. Stand firm, verse 1, in the Lord. Verse 2, live in harmony in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. In other words, these various Christian character traits are not to be attempted in a vacuum. They are to be taken up in the Lord by the strength that He supplies for the glory of His name. And that means that not everyone can do what Paul is urging us to do here. There is more to these verses than simply exerting your willpower and harnessing your best thoughts and thus living a beautiful, heavenly, exemplary life under God's blessing. No, these things are done in the Lord. You'll never be able to do what the Lord asks here unless you are in the Lord. You'll never be like Jesus unless you're actually in Jesus, trusting in Him for your salvation, made new by His Spirit, endued with His strength, walking in His blessing. And so let me just ask you, before we carry on, Before I tell you what you must do and be as a Christian, let me just ask you if you are a Christian. Let me just ask you, before I tell you what you must do and be in the Lord, let me just ask you if you're in the Lord. Do you know this morning that you belong to Jesus? That he has saved you from your sin? That he has caused you to be born again? That you really have repented of sin and believed in his name and owned him as your only hope of salvation? Are you in the Lord this morning? Are you in Christ this morning? If not, well, then the lifestyle that Paul and I are about to urge you to live will not be truly possible for you, not in any full or lasting sense in any way. So before I ask you to rejoice in the Lord, to live in harmony in the Lord, and stand firm in the Lord, you must be certain that you're actually in the Lord. Before I talk to you about the peace that is yours, verse 7, in Christ Jesus, you must be certain that you are, in fact, in Christ Jesus. And if you're not, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time for you to repent of your sins and for you to entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus right where you sit, for you to cry out to him right where you are this morning, even if you have to stop listening to me for a while in order to be alone with him in prayer. And once you've done that, once you're certain that you're in the Lord, and for all of you who already are in the Lord, let's now just look point by point at how Paul says we should live in the Lord. First of all, he says in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm In the Lord, my beloved. Now, you can hear in those words the love that we spoke about a few minutes ago. Paul calls the Philippians, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. He loves these people and he wants to see these people whom he loves stand firm in the Lord. What does that mean, really? Stand firm 
Against what? What is the wind that is blowing that you have to stand firm against? Well, in chapter 3, Paul warned his friends about two sets of errors that could topple them, that could derail them. Two sets of people in their midst who are promoting error. They were the legalists in verse 2 and the libertines in verses 18 and 19. The legalists are those who would have loved to convince the Philippian believers that in order to be right with God, you had to become a proper Jew. Keep all the ceremonial laws of Moses, including and especially the sign of circumcision. They purported, in other words, that right standing with God comes on the basis of keeping all the laws, and thus the name legalists. But what they taught is contrary to the gospel, isn't it? What they taught will actually lead men to hell. Because we cannot save ourselves by keeping God's law, can we? Whether his civil law or his ceremonial law or even his moral law. We're all lawbreakers by nature. And so if you're ever to be saved, if I'm ever to be right with God, I must be found in Christ, chapter 3, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And Paul wants the Philippians to stand firm in that position. He wants them not to give ground to the legalists who point people away from Christ and to their own righteousness. But he wants them to stand firm in the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And he also wants them to stand firm against the libertines, against those who falsely taught that, well, since we're saved by grace and not by works... Well, then we could just live however we want, can't we? But that's not true to the gospel either, is it? Christ has not saved us by our works, but he has saved us for good works. And those who think otherwise, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Stand firm against such thinking, Paul says. Stand firm against those who are able to make their appetite their God because they cease to make Christ their God, even if they have some sort of a, of a theological way of trying to prove that that's the right thing. Stand firm against that. There are moral standards for the people of God. Stand firm in them. Now, these two errors are still spreading like gangrene even in our own day, aren't they? They're still legalists about who teach or who at least strongly insinuate by their own actions that we must be saved by Jesus plus. Jesus plus penance. Jesus plus the confessional. Jesus plus the mass. Jesus plus using only a certain version of the Bible. Jesus plus a certain denominational affiliation. Jesus plus being a nice person and having civic concern. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus a whole host of things. Those folks are still there. And there are perhaps even more so in our day libertines on the prowl as well. People who have distorted the idea of Christian liberty beyond all recognition. People who claim to be followers of Jesus but who actually have very little interest in keeping his commandments. And who would be glad if you would join with them in that lifestyle. And there are other errors afoot as well, right? There are liberal views of the scriptures all around us. There are distortions of the Trinity. There are denials of our Lord Jesus Christ and his deity. 
denials of his lordship and so on. And amid all of these distortions and denials of the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in the Lord. And then also live in harmony in the Lord. Verses 2 and 3. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. In seminary, I heard a preacher call these two women odious and soon touchy. And that's really what they were, weren't they? Here are two women who sit week by week in the same worship gatherings, who share the same Lord, who've been saved by the same grace, who both, verse 3, had been significant blessings to their missionary, Paul. They shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, he says. So they were, they were workers, maybe through their hands-on labors alongside Paul when he was in Philippi, maybe by being prayer warriors or generous contributors to the mission fund once he went away. But here are two ladies who you would think would be in lockstep with each other, right? You would think that they might even be the best of friends. And yet they are bickering and they can't get along. And if I have any pastoral experience at all, I would bet that they were probably arguing over something that was really quite childish. And it's so bad. I heard John Piper speaking about this a few weeks ago. It's so bad, he pointed out, that Paul has heard about it all those miles away in prison. This problem between these two women is so bad that evidently Epaphroditus, who visited Paul in prison on behalf of the church in Philippi, felt he needed to fill Paul in on what was going on with Euodia and Syntyche. And it's so bad, as Piper again pointed out, that Paul feels compelled to call these women out by name in this letter that was to be read before the entire church. Put yourself in those shoes for a moment where I and your elders might have to name your name in front of the whole church in hopes of getting you to repent. That tells you that this was serious. This sin, this obstinate refusal to repent and to reconcile must have been pretty ugly. And it was in total contrast to the whole Christian ethos, wasn't it? The whole reason why we're in the church in the first place. The whole reason why we're sitting in the pews together. The whole reason why we're a part of God's family is because we've been forgiven. Because we have learned something about reconciliation. Because God has put to rest the hostility that existed between us and himself. That's what makes us Christians, isn't it? That God is determined to make peace with us. His enemies. Even at the cost of the blood of his own dear son. And so forgiveness and peace are at the very essence of our faith, aren't they? And if this is at the very core of Christianity, if forgiveness and peace and mercy and reconciliation are at the very core of who we are in Christ, how can we ever hold grudges in the church or even out of it? How can we of all people not live in harmony in the Lord? 
And so let me just say to you, if you are a Euodia this morning, and someone else in these pews or someone else in your family or someone else in your office is Sintiki, get that right today. Bury the hatchet today. Begin living like Christians today. Ask for and freely grant forgiveness today. And verse 3, if you know of a Euodia and a Syntyche in our midst or among your wider circle of Christian friends, I ask you also, verse 3, to help these women. Help this couple. Help these men. Help these girls. Help these boys. Whoever it may be. This is the essence of our faith, isn't it? In Christ, we have peace with God. And in Christ, therefore, we ought to have peace with one another. And as Paul says in another place, we do everything that we can, at least on our end of things, to try to make that so. And so I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And then thirdly, Paul urges us to rejoice in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. We talked about Christianity being attractive and beautiful and heavenly, and one of the things that makes it so is that Christianity makes people glad. Christ causes people to rejoice, to rejoice at being forgiven of sin, to rejoice at being declared God's child, to rejoice at being guaranteed a home with Him on high, to rejoice at the prospect of Jesus coming again and bringing with Him new heavens and a new earth. To rejoice at the promise that God causes all things to work together for good. To rejoice at God's promise never to desert or forsake us. We even rejoice, or we should rejoice, at the kind of lifestyle to which the Lord calls us in passages like this one. Christianity is a life full of reasons to rejoice. He's not talking here about slapstick laughter and always being bubbly. He's not talking about pie in the sky rejoicing. He's not talking about rejoicing to the exclusion of tears and sorrow either. But given all that is ours in Christ, in this world and especially in the next one, given all that is ours in Christ, even when we are sorrowful, Paul says elsewhere, we can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And that tells me that joy is something deeper than the effervescent smiles and the rose-colored glasses of the Trinity Broadcasting Network. There's something more than just happiness about the stuff of this earth. There's something so deep, there's something so rock-solid about real joy in Jesus that we can rejoice in the Lord always, even in the cancer ward. Even by the graveside and in the unemployment line and when our kids run away, there's something so deep and so real about the goodness of God that we can still say on the hardest days of our lives and through blinding tears, the Lord is good and does good. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He has done all things well. And he is coming again someday to make all things new. And so I'm still glad in him. That's true joy. Not the shiny, happy people holding hands that REM sung about. Not your best life now. 
but the kind of gladness that can hope in God and see his goodness and await his redemption and sing his praise even when Job's servants arrive at your door one after one and tell you that everything you have is gone. And yet, let me not leave it as though Christian rejoicing is only of the kind that glistens through even amid our tears. Let me also say that Christian rejoicing means that on many days we have a song in our hearts and a tune whistling from our lips and a spring in our steps and a smile for the passers-by and a spirit of gratitude and just genuine happiness that our neighbors won't always be able quite to make sense of. It's not true every day or in every phase of life, perhaps, but there ought to be times when our co-workers ask us, why are you so happy today? And we will then be able to give an account for the hope that is in us. And the simple answer will be, Jesus makes me happy. I read a story this week about a woman, an old woman who's been converted to Christ in a dementia ward. On the Gentle Reformation blog, her son Barry York wrote about her, and he told about how she was once an angry and perhaps demonic and deranged person. And now she's still in the dementia ward, but she is simply trusting in and has a smiling faith in Jesus. Her mind is still failing, but her son said, when he asks her now, why are you so happy? She replies with no coaching, Jesus makes me happy. Wow. Would that we could all say that. Jesus makes me happy. I said earlier that a Christian life lived according to the terms of Philippians 4, 1 through 9 will be an exceedingly attractive life. And it is this rejoicing in the Lord that's perhaps one of the most appealing things of all. And it's so important that Paul says it twice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then another appealing characteristic of the Christian life comes in verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. How do you respond to those who disagree with you? How do you respond to those who irritate you or those who are below you on the totem pole at work or in your family? Do you use authority or do you use offense that comes at you to serve you as a license for being harsh? Cruel, demeaning, unkind. Now make no mistake, Jesus can be very direct and very forceful and even sometimes righteously angry and harsh, especially with the religious hypocrites. But look at him with the woman caught in adultery, refusing to throw stones. Watch him interacting with the rich young ruler, looking at him and loving him even in spite of the man's self-deception. Observe Jesus with the Apostle Peter after he denied three times that he even knew him. Look at him taking all those children on his knees and blessing them. See him weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. See him on the cross taking thought before he dies to find a home and a caretaker for his bereft mother. Listen to the great call of the gospel that he makes in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me. 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the way to woo people to Jesus. And that's what Jesus was, a gentle man. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. So one of the most conspicuous characteristics of our Lord. And not only of our Lord Jesus, but also of our Heavenly Father as well, who welcomes prodigal sons and daughters home, not with a lecture, not with a swift kick in the pants, but with arms open wide and with a ring and sandals and a fattened calf and a kiss. And all of this is incredibly instructive for us. The Lord has a gentle spirit. You let your gentle spirit be known to all men, to the prodigals in your life, to the adulterers in your house, to the self-deceived, to the children, to those who take advantage of you, to the bereaved, to your aging parents, to your wives, men. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. I wonder if this is convicting for anyone this morning. It is for me. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. And one reason why is because, verse 5, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. And what a shame. What shame will be on our faces if Jesus should come back while some of us are yelling at our kids. If Jesus should return while some of us are belittling our spouses or berating our employees or the lady on the customer service hotline. But what a beautiful thing, what an attractive testimony before our Lord who is near and before the watching world if we are gentle and humble in heart like our Lord. And if our oaks yokes are easy and if the burdens that we place on others are light, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. And what a beautiful thing also if we can obey Paul's next command. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, in this modern world that's full of psychosis and full of stress and full of mental diagnoses of seemingly every sort, these two verses probably deserve a whole sermon or maybe a whole series of sermons on their own. How can I go through life without being anxious and worried and tense all the time? But I'm already pushing my time limits this morning, and so let me just make some brief remarks and urge you, If you struggle with anxiety, as I do often mightily, that you take a much longer look at these verses 6 and 7 on your own sometime very soon. But for now, let me just make three observations about them quickly. First of all, anxiety, fear, nervousness, worry, OCD is avoidable. You do not have to be anxious. Now, I know sometimes it feels like you can't help yourself. It feels like worry is just so much a part of your makeup that it can't be avoided. But if an angry person said that about his anger, 
I'm just angry by nature. It's who I am. I can't help it. If an angry person said that, you would say, no, Philippians 4, verse 5, says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. And so you don't have to be angry. And you'd be correct to say that. And along the same lines, I say to myself, I can't help but be anxious. I'm OCD by nature. And you should say to me in just the same way, no. Philippians 4, 6, which is a command, says be anxious for nothing. Do you see the parallel there? In the same way that gentleness is commanded, so is laying down your worries. It's a command. And if God commands us to be anxious for nothing, well then in Christ and by his power, we can do it. Anxiety is avoidable. How? Well, that's the second thing. Anxiety is avoidable and peace is possible through prayer. Through prayer. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's very simple in some ways, isn't it? When you're tempted to be anxious, nervous, worried, force yourself down on your knees in prayer. Spread out your troubles before the Lord like King Hezekiah in times of old. Lay everything out on the table. Let your requests be made known to God in the name of His Son. And you will be surprised at the deep level of peace that He will give you if you'll just lay down things at His feet. Now Paul doesn't say when God will give it. It doesn't say that if you pray that you'll get up off of your knees and immediately feel peace as soon as you say amen. Sometimes it may be that. But even if God delays for a time in giving you peace, he will not fail to do so. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And while you're waiting for that incomprehensible peace, you just keep praying every time you're anxious. And notice that Paul says these prayers must be offered with thanksgiving, verse 6. In everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The article in the bulletin this morning is about this. Don't expect God to give you peace if you're not thankful. Not because the words thank you are sort of a, a way to butter up God, like saying pretty please, but because if your heart is not grateful, your prayers probably aren't as sincere as you think they are. Believing prayer is always thankful prayer. And yet, sadly, thanksgiving is often the missing ingredient when we bring our requests to God. We rush so quickly into telling Him what we need that we don't thank Him for what we have. Don't let it be so in your life. There's always something to be thankful for, no matter how dark the night. You make sure you find it and add thanksgiving as an active ingredient in your prayer life. So those are the first two things. Anxiety is avoidable and peace is possible through prayer. And let me say, lastly, this piece is attractive. It's attractive. I've been trying to make the case throughout that the life Paul urges upon us here in Philippians 4 is a beautiful life, an attractive life, a magnetic life. Aren't you amazed and encouraged and wooed when you're around another Christian who seems to be at peace even in the middle of life's storms? Isn't it amazing to be with another Christian who can, as it were, go to sleep in the back of the boat even while all the waves are crashing over the side? Not because they're foolhardy, not because they're insensible of life's difficulties, but simply because they've cast their anxieties upon the Lord. 
And if you're attracted by others who have that kind of peace, then pursue such confident peace in your own life. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And not only must we be anxious for nothing, but we must, verse 8, dwell on that which is good. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Here's another command that perhaps merits a whole sermon. But let me just put it to you like this. So many of our problems in life would be solved if we would do nothing more than to take this verse at face value and obey it. So many of our problems in life would be solved if we would do nothing more than to take Philippians 4.8 at face value and do what it says. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. If we would allow this verse to govern our internet habits and to control our television viewing, and to guide our conversations over lunch and around the water cooler at work, if we would allow this verse to rein in what we allow ourselves to think about when we lay in bed at night staring up at the ceiling and worrying, how much better we would be, how much more holy we would be. Because how much sin arises in our lives because in our thought life we dwell on the wrong things. How much bitterness takes root in our hearts? How much lust boils up in our bodies? How much complaining sloshes out of our mouths? How much suspicion and jealousy and covetousness fill our eyes? How much worry spins its web in our minds because we sit around stewing over the wrong things? The things that aren't helpful, the things that aren't true or honorable or right or pure or lovely. If you brood over what happened in the past, then bitterness will follow your brooding. If you stare at racy pictures, lust will follow your staring. If you dwell on all that's wrong with the world, complaining will be the result. If you spend your time on conspiracy theories and wondering what everyone else's motives are, then everyone will be suspect and love will be very difficult for you. And if, like me, you are prone to sift through dozens of Google search results looking for answers to your various problems instead of doing what Paul says in verses 6 and 7, you'll probably just make yourself even more crazy. But we don't have to sit and stew over all the things that bring us down and tempt us to sin and don't please God. There is so much that is of good repute to which we might give our mental attention, so much that is excellent, so much that is worthy of praise in the Scriptures in Christian biography, and church history, in the lives of our fellow believers, in the missionary newsletters, in the beauty of God's creation. And we must discipline our minds to dwell on these things, the things that tend to joy and reconciliation and praise and faith and peace and contentment and gentleness. Dwell on these things. Ask yourself, what can I think about? What can I read about? What can I talk about? What can I even daydream about this Lord's Day afternoon that will help me love God and praise Him and rest in Him? 
rather than my usual routine of fretting and grumbling and criticizing and lusting or just being an inane 21st century blog sitting mindlessly in front of a screen all day. No. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And then there's one last command in verse 9 which we'll dwell on and then finish. Imitate the godly. Imitate the godly. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things yourselves. In other words, Paul says, if you want an example of what the previous eight verses look like in real life, imitate me, Paul says. Now that may seem like a strong statement. It may seem like a a proud statement, but Paul makes it a handful of times in his epistles. And we already heard it once already this morning back in chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Imitate me, imitate other people who live in the same godly way. And the point is not to glory in the Apostle Paul or in anyone else, but simply to say that there are examples in the Christian life, right? There are pace setters. There are people who have had a long time to cultivate standing firm and living in harmony and rejoicing in the Lord and being gentle and defeating anxiety with prayer and dwelling on things of excellence and purity. There are people who are ahead of you in the race. Paul was one of them. And the Philippians then should feed their own strength, feed their own growth by imitating his. And you should do the same. Find the people whom you know who approximate most closely to what Paul says here in these nine verses and imitate their faith. I said earlier, do you know anyone who looks like this? We talked about Jesus, but I hope that there were one or two people, maybe more, that came to your mind and you said, boy, I do know someone who, who's not perfect, but who approximates to this beautiful portrait. And whoever those people are, to the extent that they follow Jesus, you follow them. And these kind of people, if your eyes are open looking for them, they're usually not hard to find. Why? Well, because the Christian life lived according to the terms that Paul lays down here and that of the rest of the scriptures elsewhere. The Christian life lived according to the Bible is a heavenly, beautiful, attractive life. It's hard to miss if you're watching. So chances are you do know someone, some other Christian that you wish you could be more like. You admire them. You enjoy being around them. You try to pick up bits and pieces from them when you can. And you may not, up until this point, been able to put your finger exactly on what it is that's so charming to you about his or her character. But I would guess, if you thought about that person's life, in the light of the verses that we've been considering this morning, you'd find a lot of the dots connecting. Because Christianity, real Christianity, earnest Christianity, not perfect Christianity, but genuine Philippians 4 Christianity, is beautiful and attractive and appealing and charming and wooing and heavenly. And don't you want your life to be like that? Don't you want to be able to say with Paul in humility, young believer, let me show you how to walk with God. 
Not so that everyone will be attracted to you and want to get next to you and want to be like you, but because in finding themselves drawn to you, they will, Lord willing, be drawn to the perfect model after which your character is being sketched. You see, when someone is drawn to Christ's people, very often they are eventually drawn to Christ himself. A life lived, as Paul describes it in this passage, is ultimately a way that we can lift up the Lord Jesus so that he will draw all men to himself. And then there's this at the end of verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Live in the way I've instructed you, Paul says, both in verses 1 through 8 and through my own example, and the God of peace will be with you. What a promise, right? Even if no one else ever notices your Christ-like example, even if no one else ever sees or wants to follow you, God notices. And not only does God notice, but he is pleased. And that's the most important thing of all, isn't it? Not mainly the results of a life lived for Christ, but simply the fact that having done so pleases the Lord and calls down his blessing of peace and will someday warrant his well done. So, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in and from the Apostle Paul this morning, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you.